There is no growth in comfort and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way. Welcome to the show. I'm Wanda Wallace, and today we are going to be talking about how to get more of the things that you want, both at work and, I suppose, also at life, though our focus is on to be, be at work. Now, I have to say, regardless which company I'm working with, which industry or which country I'm in, the people that I talk to cannot seem to get enough advice about how to persuade people, how to influence them. And we all know in the modern global era of corporate life, there are multiple cultures, multiple stakeholders, multiple bosses, and vastly competing different interests. So that getting what you want is extremely difficult. Even getting a part of what you want can be extremely difficult. The old advice used to be that you use power and leverage and threats. And even sometimes to think win-win, but people are finding that just doesn't bring the success they're expecting. And I'll say that this is as true in work as it is outside of work. And my statement is try persuading a three-year-old to do what you want to do on a Saturday afternoon. It's not terribly effective. So my guest for today has a new framework, one he believes is more effective and better aligned for today's world. And we're going to talk about how to get more of what you want, the key ingredient for successful negotiation. So my guest is Stuart Diamond. Stuart's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist a professor, an attorney, an entrepreneur, and an author. The book that has been a New York Times bestseller um, is called Getting More. The website is www.gettingmore.com. Now, this framework has been used to train 12,000 employees worldwide at Google. The book has sold more than 1.3 million copies and has been translated in 24 languages. The model has been adopted by U.S. Special Operations for Training Special Forces, Green Berets, Navy SEALs, U.S. Marines, and others. And Stewart has taught managers and executives in 60 countries, from country presidents to school children to parents. He's also um, chaired a listed high-tech company, so he's seen this from the inside as well as from the outside observing individuals. So, Stuart, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. It's a pleasure. Now, I I have to start at the top. Before we launch on this, there's a whole bunch of books about how to negotiate. So why did you decide to write this book? Well, first, my students at Wharton Business School and elsewhere asked me to write it because this model that I have is – and it took me 25 years to do, uh, to research among, sorry about that, thousands of people in many countries, is much different than than what passes for negotiation today. Uh, what passes for negotiation today is power, leverage, logic, and threats. It's based on law and economics research from the 1970s, and if you look at the way the world is today, you see it's not real effective. My model is based on psychology research that began in the 1990s on emotional intelligence, cultural diversity, and perceptions. And our study showed that it creates four times as much value, twice as many agreements with each one getting twice as much for two reasons. 
Number one, if you understand their perceptions, you've got a better starting point for persuasion. And number two, if you value those perceptions, they're more likely to go along with you so that the right answer to the statement, I hate you, I hate your country, I hate your company, I hate your religion, is tell me more. This is an information collection system on the human psyche, and the greater information you get makes better deals. Wow, hold on, Sarah. There's a lot of things in there I want to be sure I capture here. So I get that um, this is based on emotional intelligence and cultural differences and perceptions. But you said that this model creates four times the value and twice as much money. Did I hear that correctly? No, four times as much value, which is twice as much as much for each deal and twice as many deals. Okay, twice as much for each deal and twice as many deals. Right. And that when people say, I hate you and I hate your country and I hate whatever else, your answer needs to be, tell me more. That's exactly right. The problem with most deals today is the parties don't know enough about each other. And so they've got less to trade. Okay. So they don't know what to trade. That is whether it's a foreign leader your three-year-old kid, a business partner, a student, somebody you meet on the store, and the airline ticket agent. Okay. I find that the airline ticket agents that I make small talk uh, with don't ever charge me change fees for my tickets. (laughs) My students find that when they commiserate with them at the airport, they get upgraded to first class. So everything one does. Uh, We had a guy at Google who was unable to close a large deal uh, for two years, and after just spending a couple of hours thinking about the other party, he went back and he closed a half a billion dollar deal in three weeks. Wow. So what I did, most negotiation books in theory, they start in the laboratory and they try to apply it to the world. What I and the 30,000 people I've taught advised did is I went, went to the real world and I tried to figure out what worked and didn't work, and I, and I backed up gradually to a set of principles based on what I observed in the real world, not vice versa. Okay. All right, now, the advice on negotiation has always been think win-win, um, and I've always struggled with that for my own reasons because not everybody party, every party thinks win-win with you, so sometimes that's easier said than done, and not every deal is quite as easily win-win as the books would have you say, but you say that your model is more than think win-win. Can you explain that? Yeah, I don't like win-win. First of all, it's been used so much it feels somewhat manipulative. And second, if you think of winning, you think of losing. And third of all, it's irrelevant. I might want to lose today to get more tomorrow, if you want to put it in those terms, by forming a relationship. What I want to know is what are my goals and are my actions meeting my goals? That's number one. And number two, what I want to know is what are our respective needs and how do we trade things that are unequally valued, which we'll get to later in the program. Those are much more precise than win-win, which really we don't know what that means. Okay. All right. I love it. So let's start. There are three components we're going to talk about for this whole model of getting more of what you want. And the first one you say is really understanding what lies and what are the pictures other people have in their head. What do you mean? Uh, Here's a couple of examples. Your boss says you're doing a bad job. You don't argue. You say, tell me more. 
How am I doing a bad job? Some might be failed, some might be not. The boss may have the wrong perceptions. You don't know that until you find out the boss's perceptions. Your kid says, I'm not hungry. You don't say, eat your food. You say, tell me why you're not hungry. Maybe they don't like the food. Maybe, you know, they would like to eat in an hour. Maybe there's something that's even healthier that they might like to eat. You just don't know that. Uh, So you've got to find out what the other party is perceiving. Uh, Your wife says, um, or your husband says, I'm never skiing again after I fell on the last ski trip. You should say, if I were you, I'd never ski again. Or, Dad, tell me why you love smoking. Unless you validate their perceptions, that conversation is not happening. So you've got to start with their perceptions and little by little bring them to where you want them to go a step at a time. Now, this sounds like what I count as some of the best advice around conflict, that you start with understanding where other people are coming from. Well, yeah, conflict resolution is part of negotiation. I define negotiation as the basic process of human interaction. Every time two people interact, walking down the street in the store, consciously or not, verbal or not, someone's trying to meet their goals with somebody else. And so that everything you do involves persuasion at some level. And the more you understand the processes to use, the better interventions you can make and the more effective you'll be. Okay, I love that. Everything you do involves negotiation in some way. All right, so process of human interaction. That I get more and you get less. Here's an interesting question. If I give you a gift, two benefits more. Have you taken something from me? Maybe not. When you get a discount in the store, have you taken something from them? Maybe the sales clerk will go home and tell their family, I finally met somebody today who wasn't a jerk, and they're more motivated. So this whole notion of I take more, you get less, is, is just stupid. It, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, 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 comport with human psychology. Right. Okay. So our starting principle to understand where people are coming from is not to start arguing with them, but to validate their perceptions and get them to say, tell me more. Exactly right. So you've got enough information to do the negotiation. Okay. All right. Now, so give me an ex- a real work example about how this tell me more happens in a corporate environment when I'm trying to get Let's say a raise from my boss. Right. Uh, you, you say, I'd, I'd like a raise. The boss says, I'm not in a position to give you a raise. You say, well, when are you in a position to give a raise? And you say, when the company uh, makes more money and when you do a better job. You say, what does that look like? Have you ever given a raise when the company was strapped for money? In what circumstances is that? And then you say, you can't take any money from last year's budget, which has been spent, but what about next year? Is there anything I can shoot for for next year uh, that, will, uh, uh, th- that will cause you to give me a raise if I do well? If I made the company $10 million, I would get a raise. So I want to know what the goals are, and I want to know what to shoot for. I tell my students and people I advise that companies are all, almost always willing to give you money from next year's budget than this year's. Okay. Fair enough. So I tell students, don't argue about the uh, about the starting salary as much as you're going to talk about what do I what happens if I do a good job for next year. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that, All right. that's how I would use that in a in a work situation. Um, also, in terms of perceptions, 
And uh, one thing you didn't mention is the Wall Street Journal's website says this was the number one book to read for one's career. And this is because I really looked at companies and tried to figure out what causes people to get ahead who may have no power. And I found, for example, in every company, there's always one person or a couple of people who've been there forever, who've been put out to pasture that nobody listens to, who have the whole company in their head. Go find that person and make a friend out of them. They know everything. Mm-hmm. It could be the janitor. It could be a former managing director. It could be somebody at the cafeteria. But the more information you get from people who know more than you do about about the situation you're in, the better you're going to know where you can have the most chance of getting ahead. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and those people are sometimes buried in the least likely places, and getting to know them gives you lots and lots of information. Exactly. I I once had a student who was hired by a company, and he was at a, uh, a meeting where there was nobody in the meeting that wasn't at least four levels higher than he was. So he clearly had no power. But he had prepared. Nobody else had. He said to everybody, well, what's, what's our goal here? Oh, what, what do you think the problem is with the goal? And within four questions that were lifted directly from getting more, he ran the meeting. Okay. So a series of well-placed questions to organize a process for people tends to get people to look to you as a leader. Okay. So can you give us a hint about some of those goal, those questions? You've said, you know, what's the yeah, goal what and what's the obstacles? Goal? What's the problem in meeting our goal? Uh, how do the parties perceive each other? Are there trust issues? Uh, what are the intangibles that people want? Respect, uh, look good, safe face, etc. What does a commitment look like to each other? Very important question. In in many countries, we think contracts are commitments. In many Arab countries, handshakes are commitments, and contracts are not as commitments as much. And so how do they make commitments uh, is is also very important. What standards do they use? How how have they decided uh, that they, that they, what criteria will they use to make a decision? Is it an industry price? Is it... Uh, is it uh, accomplishing a certain amount? Well, when I teach at uh, at UPenn at the law school, business school, medical school, engineering school, uh, and uh, I always say to the dean of one of the schools every year, "Am I worth less than I was worth last year?" And he says, "Of course not." I said, "Then you'll at least give me a cost of living increase," and I get one every year, often more. That's a standard. It's their standards. Okay. All right. So we, you said, what's the goal? What's the problem in meeting our goals? How do people see each other? Are there trust issues? What are the intangibles that people want? Yeah. What does and, commitment and, and look like? The model is 20 yeah. questions among the ones I just mentioned to help you organize every negotiation. The military, the SEALs and others use this to make uh, connections with persuadable people on the other side. If they make a human connection with tribal leaders and they start asking these questions, the tribal leaders will tell them where the enemy is and where the bombs are buried in the road. Okay. Sounds pretty powerful to me. I don't know that we can go much further than that. So this whole secret to understanding the pictures that are in people's head is just having really good questions, being prepared to listen. Yeah, and of and, course, if you don't know, you ask. What are the pictures in your, in your head? They might tell you. If you don't know, you guess. If you guess right, they'll be happy. If you guess wrong, they'll tell you what's right. 
a negotiation, in my view, is just a conversation. The more informal, the better. It's not two people sitting across from each other at a table with five people on each side. It's just a conversation. It's just trying to meet every people's needs and trying to solve problems along the way. It's not complicated. People make it complicated. I love that. Complicated. I yeah. <laughs> we make it complicated. I get it. All right. So Stuart, let me just go back and say um, that I one of the things that strikes me in your statement here of understanding what the pictures are in people's heads is this notion of tell me more. When someone says I'm doing a bad job, rather than arguing, I want to validate their perceptions. Tell me more. I'm looking for understanding what they mean by that, how they got to that conclusion, what a good job would look like, um, whether the data is accurate or inaccurate, and a whole host, as you mentioned already, 20 questions that you can use to organize every negotiation. The other thing that strikes me about this is just recognizing how much negotiation we do every day in every single interaction. As you said, walking down the street with someone else is a negotiation of which direction we're going to go, who's going to walk on which side, and so forth, in its simplest form. So more thoughtful about how we have negotiation conversations or just conversations in general strikes me as being a really clever move. Yeah, and of course, the more you, let's put it this way, a a non-expert looks at a a painting and just sees the shapes. An expert looks at the painting and sees this million little brush strokes, right? It doesn't take any more time for the expert to see all the the, the, the smaller details, but the, but the expert gets a lot more pleasure out of that painting for having known a lot more. Okay. And so it's the same then with human interaction, that the more I know about the other person, the more pleasure I'm going to get out of the interaction. Is and that the your... more successful you're going to be. And, and, and actually, the quicker your negotiation will go, because you'll be pushing all the right buttons instead of stumbling around. I love it. I love it. Okay. All right. So we're going to take a break shortly. With me today is Stuart Diamond. Stuart is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. He teaches a negotiation course at Wharton School of Business that has been highly sought after and also teaches at law school. The book is called Getting More, and the website is www.gettingmore.com. As you just heard from Stuart, um, this framework has been used by Google to train 12,000 employees worldwide. The book has sold 1.3 million copies. It's Wall Street Journal's number one book to read for your career. And the model has been used by the U.S. Special Operations for training a whole host of their units, as well as being adopted by executive and managers in 60 countries. Um, And as you've heard Stuart say, it works as well with your boss as it does with your customer and as it does with your children and your spouse. So when we come back, we're going to talk about the second part. If the first part is understanding what's in people's minds, the second part is understanding what emotions uh, people are feeling. And we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. 
Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Stuart Diamond. Stuart is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and a host more. The book that we've been talking about is Getting More, How You Can Negotiate to Succeed in Work and Life. And it has been, well, sold 1.3 million copies used by a host of leaders and managers, parents, presidents, school children to get more of what you want. Now, Stuart has said, um, in his view, negotiation is the basic process of human interaction. It's a conversation, and the more informal, the better. The whole issue around negotiation is meeting people's needs and solving problems. It's not complicated, but we make it complicated by adding things like power and threats and win-win language and get more, give less, etc. So, Stuart's starting premise on this model of how you negotiate more effectively for anything is that first you have to understand what's in people's heads. Now, to understand what's in people's heads, it's not a matter of an argument. It's a matter of having a series of questions to ask to understand whatever it was they just said to you, what did they really mean by that? Now, the second component has to do with this understanding people's emotions. So, Stuart, tell us why do emotions matter so much? Yes. May I, before I answer that question, I know that people... Some people like journalists, some doesn't. I'm also an attorney, and I have an MBA from Wharton, and so I, I and a law degree from Harvard. And I wanted to mention that only because people don't think I made this stuff up, but I actually researched it. Okay, fair um, enough. Anyway, all right. Um, logic is the big lie in negotiations. Uh, negotiations are not logical; they're emotional, at least in the beginning. And let me mention uh, some of the studies. The studies show that every negotiation in which there are issues of threats, face-saving, uh, dashed expectations, or high stakes, people get emotional. Every negotiation worth doing is high stakes to the parties. World peace, a billion-dollar deal, my kid wants an ice cream cone. 
which means every negotiation in the world begins as an emotional negotiation. When people get emotional, they physiologically listen less, their judgment gets clouded, and their goals get distracted. And so the notion of starting with logic literally falls on deaf ears in almost every negotiation. And that's why the world doesn't often meet its goals, because people get distracted. So you've got to recognize that. And when you say be logical, it's dumb advice. You first have to, to take care of people's emotions. You have to understand their emotions. You have to value their emotions. And you have to address their emotions, or else they won't even hear you. So you do that by giving them what's called an emotional payment, an apology, a concession, I understand. That gets people ready to be persuaded. I want to give you a simple example, if I may, Wanda. Okay. About five years ago, I had a Latino student in my class who was stopped by a white cop in the middle of Philadelphia for going through a stop sign. Big ticket, $400 ticket. The cop came over, started saying all these racist, illegal things, like you Latinos, you don't belong here, you take our jobs, why don't you go back where you came from? And the student thought I could sue him, I could report him, but then she thought, what's my goal, which is not to pay a ticket to size up my monthly rent. So she didn't say, you're right, but she said, what you're saying is very important. People should not be here illegally and take our jobs. I'm here on a student visa. I respect this country's laws. Could you forgive me for this one mistake? And the cop said, sure. Now, people not, might not want to do that for themselves, but that's available to people if they decide to do it. You've got to reduce the emotional temperature of discussions and negotiations. If you don't, human discussions become unstable and unpredictable. And so that's a really key issue to be thinking about. Now, you can argue over, you know, or talk about what's a big enough emotional payment. I once did something my wife didn't like, and I brought her a dozen roses, and she said, that's not a big enough emotional payment. So you can argue about that, I suppose. Okay. Now, what do you do with you about your own emotions? Well, yes. a good mantra is you want surgeons who are empathetic, but dispassionate, not emotional and empathetic. And the way to calm yourself down is take a break, get another negotiator, or two of my favorites that come from my research is lower your expectations about how people are going to treat you. That way, you'll never be disappointed and you'll often be pleasantly surprised, but you'll be less emotional. Also, don't take it personally. People take things per too personally in today's world. So they called you a jerk. Maybe it's not about you. Maybe they're having a bad day. Maybe they're having a bad life. If you commiserate with them, they'll pay you back a hundred times over. I tell, I, I've uh, given advice to the Chinese since the new administration has come up, including to senior officials. And I, and I, be, I begin my advice each time by saying, Two words you need to do, and that is chill out. <laughs> take it okay. slower. Step back. Calm down. Take the longer view. Okay. That's um, 
I love this notion that you start um, with recognizing that it is an emotional exchange and that people are not being logical, they're not thinking clearly, and they're not even hearing you, regardless what you're saying. Right. So that you give an emotional payment. And this notion that you could give um, a simple thing like an apology or an acknowledgement of some component of what the person has said, exactly with the student, you know, what you're saying is really important. I don't want illegal immigrants here, and I'm here on a visa. But all of that starts with not having an argument and acknowledging the emotion that is in the other person. Now, I often, people say to me when I talk about this, particularly around conflict, they'll often say to me, that feels manipulative, well, how do you get around that? Well, these tools are in fact morally neutral, but the question is, if you can use them for good or ill, but if you use them uh, in a way that will benefit yourself and others, there's long-term benefits. If I manipulate you emotionally and you find out about it, you're eventually going to come back at me. There's not really a percentage in that. And I did want to mention, without naming names, is those politicians who make better human connections with people uh, tend to get elected. If you make a human connection with somebody by valuing their emotions, you are six times more likely to get what you want. 90% versus 16%. So people are about 55% of why people reach deals. How they talk to each other, which is what we've been talking about, are another 37%. And the facts, experience, expertise, about 8%. So this whole thing about fake news and fake facts, what people are trying to say very inelegantly, that facts are less important these days than human connections and process. Okay. That's what's really going on in today's world. I think that's there's nothing more true than that. So um, the connection is about 60-some percent. How we talk to each other is about 37%, and the facts are 8%. 8%, which is really interesting. Your, your lead-in talked about a world of expertise where you had to yeah. actually be, be ready to, to, uh, to handle surprises. We're actually in a, almost in a post-experience world in, in many cases. Now, experience is, uh, invokes a level of your, of your brain, the bottom level of your cerebral cortex called crystallized knowledge. And, uh, and while that's okay, um, the world is changing so quickly that crystallized knowledge is less and less important. In many engineering disciplines, by the time somebody is a senior in college, 30% of what they learned as a freshman is obsolete. That's how fast the world is changing. The upper level is called flexible knowledge, the upper level of knowledge on the, on the brain. And that enables you to take all this information coming at you from around the world, often disjointed, on deadlines, surprising, risky, recognize it, organize it, and use it for problem solving. And from where we sit now, A is the key success factor for the century, and B, it's why people in their 20s with less experience than their seniors can make a billion dollars more than ever before because they have flexible knowledge. So, in fact, one's ability to take all this information in, organize it, use it for problem solving, and be ready for surprises is essential for success in today's world. 
I love that one. I've been having a number of arguments with several of my clients about the current millennial generation and about their impatience with learning facts, details, and to which I say to them, maybe they're about to inherit or they are inheriting a world where facts and details are not power. Facts well, and details are free goods. Anybody can have them. Important. It's important to know, you know, which uh, which tooth to drill uh, yeah. if you're a dentist. But but here here's the thing: um, if I make better connections with people and I have better process skills, I will take your clients away from you and will hire you as a, as a as an expert, as a fact person. It's just less and less important. It's much more important to understand people's emotions and sensibilities and how to talk to them. Are you using standards? Are you talking about goals? Are you trading unequally valued items? So what you just said about this ability to take information that's disjointed, inconsistent, coming from all sorts of directions, to recognize it, to use it, to organize it for problem solving as being the upper level skill that is really so important is exactly what a lot of people are talking about makes the difference in someone who gets promoted to higher ranks and someone who doesn't, and including to the C-suite. So if anybody is looking for what does it take for me to become more successful in the higher part of the organization? organization, that's a piece of it. And and the reason for that, Wanda, is because if you have people in process knowledge, you can handle any set of facts because you've got a way to address it with other people. If you just become an expert in one narrow fact pattern, one field of expertise, you're of much less value. Okay. Excellent. And you're doing the high-level stuff that is so difficult to get people to do in the first place. All right, now let's go backwards. We were talking about emotions and understanding where other people are coming from. And you, I left out the second part of what you said at the beginning, which is this whole thing about how do you handle your own emotions in the midst of a negotiation? Because it's not that you just stay a disinterested second party or third party who can be calm and collected. So you were talking about ways to calm down, and you said... Please get off the phone. I'm on a live radio show. I'm sorry. That was my wife, Wanda. Okay. No problem. day off at home, and there it was. That's no problem whatsoever. Okay. So you were talking about handling your own emotions. Is one you said to lower your expectations, and that will make you less emotional. You said don't take it personally. You said commiserate with how the other person is feeling, and you said chill out, slow down, and step back. Now, those are sometimes easier said than done, particularly when I think that other person over there is about to get the best of me and it's not fair and so on and so on. All we go. So do you have techniques for training people for how to step back? First of all, I tend to have a firm grasp of the obvious and then I tend to say it. I can always say no, they don't have to get the best of me or I can say I'm not feeling that I'm, uh, I'm doing so well in this conversation. What do you think? I tend to say what's going on. Watch kids negotiate. I'm happy. I'm sad. I'm tired. I'm hungry. We solved the 2008 writer's strike in Hollywood by getting the uh, writers to ask the studio heads, are you guys happy? We're not happy. Making any money? We're not making any money. If you had to do it over again, how would you do it? It took 20 minutes to restart the negotiations and a few days to solve a one-year labor dispute. So I want to say what's going on. Great. That certainly goes in the face of a lot of negotiation practice. Uh, I'm sorry? 
I said there's a lot of negotiating advice that would say don't give that much away that quickly. I also want to mention uh, something that's related to this that's very important to people, and that is to be incremental. In a risky world, people don't like big steps, and I want to use another example from kids. Kids, Kids say, can I have a cookie? Well, can I have a half a cookie? Well, can I have a quarter of a cookie? Well, can I have a little crumb of a cookie? And the reason kids do that is that they know that the distance between a crumb of a cookie and a whole cookie is less than the distance between no cookie and a crumb of a cookie. We didn't need a thousand-page health care bill in this country. We needed ten pages and then ten more. They don't need a big peace treaty in the Middle East. They need one factory operated by Arabs and Jews and then one more. The technology sector has figured out you spend most of your time getting the model straight and then you replicate the heck out of it. The social system has not figured that out yet. So big moves don't work in a risky world. Great. Or even at home. Okay. Uh, See what happens. Try a little more. (laughs) I'm going to try it. You wait and see. We'll see how I do this this evening here. All right. So let's go back to this whole notion of emotions. So this, uh, my own emotions, I need to keep under check. Try to realize that it's not always about me, that it really may be about somebody else. Step back. Take it slow. Be incremental. And then are there any tricks for figuring out what the other person is actually feeling? Because sometimes when people say one thing, what they're feeling is something else. Well, that comes from practice. You need to watch people carefully. You need to say, if I were in this position, what might I be feeling? You can guess about that. You can keep asking questions. You can ask third parties. But it's an an exploration uh, on what other people are feeling. I I can't help you unless I know what's going on with you. Um, So how come the boss is mad? Maybe they don't have enough time. Maybe they're frustrated. Maybe it's not about you, as I said. Maybe they're having a bad day or a bad year. And so I'm always in there trying to collect information. And if somebody gets impatient with me, I want to say, well, what's wrong with collecting some information to make this all better? I want to Talk about what's going on. This is a this process that I teach is a transparent process. It's not a manipulative process. Um, J.P. Morgan brought five of his six of his Chinese clients, sorry, to New York to be trained in this process with them, figuring if they all spoke the same process and people language to get along better. That doesn't mean they're going to tell us who was in their bank account. But it does mean they're going to ask questions and give emotional payments in the same way so as to have a better discussion. Okay. And is it working for them? Yeah. Uh, and it works all around. I, have, uh, I do workshops where companies bring their clients with them. And what happens is after the workshop, around the table are sitting fewer jerks. People sort of pay more attention to each other, and they find better solutions more quickly. Okay. This is based, as I said, on human psychology, and we've tested it out for 25 years in 60 countries. Okay. Um, I don't doubt it. So we've talked about this process as, one, give an emotional payment. 
Two, kind of managing your own emotions, trying to keep the temperature down a bit. And three, asking a lot of questions, trying to gather information on what's really going on for the other party. Um, yeah, are there be times very, to be exquisitely sensitive to their emotions and try to keep myself calm? If you're not calm, you're good to nobody, including yourself. And you might say, you know, well, look at Romeo and Juliet in the throes of passion. Isn't passion good? I say passion is great, but not much information is being processed there. <laughs> I guess that's not much of a negotiation at that moment either, too. Maybe some other kind. We'll leave it at that one before I get in trouble here. Okay. All right. Are there times when I ever want to be a little judicious in what I say or how much I ask people what's going on? Or is it always better to just ask? No. All the time is the answer. I have three questions, major questions. What are my goals? Who are they? And then given the first two, what will it take to persuade them? So it's always about them. There is no one-size-fits-all. This is very situational. I will be more judicious in my language than others, depending upon how sensitive you are to direct talk. So it, it starts with you. You know, I need to understand who it is I'm dealing with as best as I can, and then I'll fashion my communication in a way that makes you comfortable talking to me. Great. I love that. So more judicious in the language, depending upon the sensitivity of the other. So I'm crafting, I'm adjusting my speech, my communication patterns, my style to make the other person more comfortable. Right. And if you say, well, aren't you manipulating people? Well, I talk to my kids differently than I talk to my business partner. That's not manipulative. I'm just being sensitive to the fact that I'm with two kinds of different people in two kinds of different situations. Um, for the record, I think it's impossible to lead effectively if you're not constantly adapting your style to the other party that you're dealing with. Not the core message, but the style. Because if you make yeah, other people again, feel more comfortable, uh, you're better off. I suggest to people, Wanda, not to mimic anybody else, and to be themselves, not to be an actor or something, but just to be more sensitive to the people in the situation. Right. right. I got it. Okay. Brilliant. Um, we're going to take a break again. With me today is Stuart Diamond. The book that we have been talking about is Getting More, How You Can Negotiate to Succeed in Work and Life. And the website is www.gettingmore.com. Now, Stuart has a long list of accolades, including being a journalist and a professor and an attorney and an entrepreneur, in addition to being an author. So the work behind this model has been incredibly well-researched in multiple places, and it comes more from practice and then into the research area rather than the other way around. The notion is it's grounded in human psychology and human behavior and that it is about better conversations. So the better connection I make with people, I'm six times more likely to get what I want. And that facts only account for about 8% of success. So the notion behind in the beginning, we were talking about paying attention to the pictures that are in people's heads. And here we've been talking about understanding the emotions that are present. When there are high stakes negotiations, emotion is there. That means people listen less, their judgment is clouded, the logic is gone, and they are distracted. So we want to begin to look at the emotions. And that involves you having a very careful, very clever, not clever, but um, sensitive way of getting people to talk to you about what's going on for them and staying calm yourself. 
Now, one of the next piece of this puzzle has to do with how you figure out what to trade. So we're going to take a break. And when we come back, that's what we'll talk about. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Kless. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Stuart Diamond, and the book we've been talking about is Getting More, How You Can Negotiate to Succeed in Work and Life. The website is www.gettingmore.com, and this book has been rated by the Wall Street Journal as the number one book to read for your career. So now we've been talking about how do you understand the pictures that are in people's heads, and how do you get people to talk about the emotions that they're feeling and keep yourself calm. The last part of this, or the part that really puts it all together, is how do you add value? So, Stuart, how do you add value? How you add value, Awanda, is you trade items that people value unequally. And it's not just about, I'll trade you lower prices for higher volume. It's any one of the billions of synapses that people have, which is what most people miss, and let me give you a good example. The CEO of a major company in Philadelphia once told me the most important thing he ever did for his major client in a 20-year business relationship was to pick up the client CEO's mother-in-law at the Philadelphia airport one Saturday night. It has nothing to do with any deal, but it affects every deal. This is also called the value of intangibles. And the reason that most deals fail is the parties don't know enough about each other. They don't have enough in the deal. Intangibles fill the space between hard and fast legal positions, economic positions, and other positions. And so I want to be, I want to be asking other people, I want to be guessing what things they value, respect, or, uh, you know, there may be all kinds of things. A guy from Google that I taught wanted to get a multi-million dollar deal. Couldn't get the deal. 
in talking to the guy, he found that the, that the client's teenage daughter was having computer problems. The Googler invested half a day, went over the guy's house, tutored the daughter, fixed the computer, and got the deal. For the Googler, what's half a day for a multi-million dollar deal? But, uh, and for the client, uh, this, uh, I can give this deal to any technology company, but my daughter's learning, very important. And so those are things to trade. And I just want to finish this little um, explanation of it by saying this works tremendously well with children. Children are easy to persuade if you know the deal. A Navy SEAL in one of my courses told me after a course that he went home and his three-year-old daughter was sitting as usual, fully clothed, arms folded, legs crossed on the rug in the bedroom saying, I'm not getting a bath. So he said to her, I'll tell you what, you get in the bath, and I'll take your favorite songs and put them on my iPhone and serenade you in her in the bath. He said within one minute, she was in the bath. He said, I used something similar on her and her brother to brush her teeth and go to bed. And he said, within minutes, my entire relationship with my children had changed. Wow. That has profound implications. I just want to pause and appreciate that how how much it would change if we stopped arguing and fighting at work and at home. Um, yeah, I, and, I want to mention one other yep, about kids because parents say, what of my teenagers? A colleague of mine went to give some comments about this model to, uh, seven, to 11th and 12th graders on Long Island. And he said to them, list all the things that your parents would love you to do, but you don't do. And they listed, you know, taking out the garbage, emptying the dishwasher, etc. And when they got a whole page of him, he said to them, this is your currency. This is what you trade for the car, for the video game, for night out. These are the things you trade. Okay. So it's just really as simple as paying attention to what it is the people I'm trying to persuade to influence a value yeah, and how can and, I and give them some of that value? Items of unequal value, always. Okay. Okay. Now, sometimes it can't be as simple as I'm going to go to the client's house and help the daughter with her computer problems in a half day. Sometimes these have got to be fairly complicated, or do they always turn out so simple? Um, the more information I know, the easier it is to do the deal. So it doesn't have to be complicated. It could be as simple as 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 you meet, begin to make a relationship connection with somebody if you find out that they're looking for a good restaurant. You know, there are trades that are obviously unethical or illegal, but I can certainly tell somebody about a restaurant or a vacation spot or you know, give them something to make their life just a little bit better. You know, hello, having a bad day, which you say to somebody at the rental car counter, is an emotional payment which also gives them a little piece of value that you might get a free upgrade. Okay. Okay. All right, now, suppose I'm just starting out with someone that I don't know terribly well. How do I go about finding out what's of value to them? My major opening in a negotiation is what's going on. Okay. It's just a conversation. There's no formula here. You know, I might ask if they're in, in, in Alaska or New Jersey if there are bears in the garbage. You know, I might, you know, talking about the weather is a simplistic way of doing this, but the more uh, uh, focused it is on the people involved, the better it is. But I just, it's just a conversation. I just tend to want to 
find things out about people and tell them things. And uh, again, I'm not giving, I'm not going to give things away that might leave me in a vulnerable position. Let me actually talk about this for a minute and how you release information. Hold information close to the vest is bad advice since the more information you release, the more value you can add. The right uh, advice is release as much information as you can as long as it doesn't jeopardize your goals, which means I'm not going to tell you I can afford $10,000 at the beginning of the negotiation, but at the end of the negotiation, if you're at 15000 and at 10000 you're still the best deal, then I'll tell you. So. Okay. You know, it depends upon what your goals are at the moment you really see information. That's such a profoundly different way to think about negotiation. I just want to repeat what you said, that withholding information is a bad advice, that you release as much information as you can so long as you are not compromising your goal. Exactly. Wow. That would change how we treat each other. It would change what we would ask for of people, and it would change what we know we need. And I want to give people choices. I want to, I want to give them options because a lot of people don't have any power, and I give them options. I'd like to just mention one more involving a child, my own child. When my child was three, he wouldn't eat vegetables. And we said to him, I'll tell you what, Alexander, Mommy and Daddy agree to cook every vegetable in the world. You can taste them and you can spit it out if you don't like it. We made like a spit-out motion with our tongue, and he thought that was funny. And he was game. Number 26 was at a mommy beans, and he must have eaten 90,000 of them in the next six years. So, so, you know, giving people a choice who feel the lack of power, a choice within certain parameters is another good idea because it makes people feel more comfortable, more in control, and less emotional. I love that. <laughs> Spit them out if you don't like it, and then you hit it. Number twenty, number twenty-seven. Okay, Great. fabulous. Twenty-six. Um, yeah. Twenty-six. Twenty-six. Okay. So, and this the notion of giving people who feel that they don't have power some choices in their life. Yes. Okay. All right. Stuart, this strikes me as an incredibly powerful model, and I want to just try to see if I can highlight once again some of the components. So the first principle here is we want to give up this notion of power and threats and withholding information so I have more power over you and holding my cards close to the vest and not revealing my emotions and all that sort of thing. And instead, what I want to do is to start a conversation in the best conceivable way so that I understand what is going on for other people, what is going on for people in their heads and what is going on for people in their emotions. And so, as you said, you'd like to start with what's going on and get people talking. The better the human connection, the better that conversation is going to go. And then I recognize, I also want to reinforce what you said in the second segment, that this notion that um, a negotiation is not a logical process, at least not at the start. That when emotions are present, which is any case where it's worth spending time on, people are not thinking clearly, they're not listening to what you're saying, their emotions are running wild, and their judgment is clouded. So I want to tune in to what they're saying. And then the final piece is, in doing all of that, I'm going to discover what it is that they truly value. And the more I can give them things that they value, they're of unequal value, the better it's going to work in the end. 
you know, often intangibles, non-monetary, like right. respect, like time, and so forth. Like a choice. Okay. Fabulous. Well, Stuart, we are out of time, so thank you for being a guest today. Thank you, Wanda. The book, again, is Getting More, How You Can Negotiate to Succeed in Work and Life. And as Stuart has said, this works as well at home as it does at work. The website, if you would like to check out more, is www.gettingmore.com. Stuart, it's been a pleasure. What a great insight. Next week, join us. We'll be talking with David Allen about how to get things done. So join us then. Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.